of Pogo. Uh, people are still jumping on, so we're gonna give it another minute before we begin the conversation about OLC. So just give us about another minute, thanks. Okay, I'm back again. This is Danielle Bryan, the Executive Director of the Project on Government Oversight, and thanks to all of you for joining. It, it struck us as news continues to unfold where the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel opinions have a sort of a direct implication for um, Congress and its abilities, its powers or abilities to do its work. Um, we thought it'd be a great opportunity for uh, both our Director of Public Policy, Liz Hempowitz, and our Director of the Constitution Project, Sarah Turbeville, to sort of have a talk through on what is this office, why does it matter, why does POGO care so much about it, because it has become sort of one of the most popular things for us to talk about internally. Um, and I think at the end there'll be a little conversation as well about what, we, what we're thinking about uh, doing about it. So it's about a half hour call is our plan. Thank you for those of you who already sent in some questions. And I think you have Liz's email. You can always contact me directly if you have follow-up questions as well. So I'm going to ask Sarah to maybe start us off. That's right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this afternoon. Um, I'm going to start with a brief overview of sort of the origins of the Office of Legal Counsel and what it now does in its modern iteration. Um, the office is a relatively new creation to fill a role that is you know, almost as old as the Republic. Going back to the Judiciary Act of 1789, um, Congress created the position of the Attorney General and charged the Attorney General with giving advice and opinion upon questions of law when required or requested by the President um, of the United States or by you know, cabinet heads. And essentially, there's been several evolutions of how the AG has delegated that role. And ultimately, um, what we're looking at now with the Office of Legal Counsel has been around since about 1950. Um, it essentially serves as the executive branch's in-house expert on legal interpretation. Um, importantly for our conversation today, its opinions are effectively binding on federal agencies, um, although the president and the AG are actually free to ignore its rulings, um, though that's relatively uncommon. Um, the OLC is not the only entity in the executive branch that provides legal advice, uh, but it is essentially the de facto entity that does that. But increasingly, we're seeing the White House Counsel take on this role, the State Department legal advisor, other uh, agency counsels and the like. 
um, have also taken prominence in, in providing legal advice, particularly on issues of national security. Um, and the last thing I'll say before I hand it over to Liz, who is going to get us into the meat of our conversation this afternoon, um, is a bit about how OLC delivers its advice. Um, the most high-profile way that it does this is through publishing um, or issuing formal memorandum that it terms opinions. And we can talk about what we think of its <laughs> use of the word opinion um, in, in describing its own legal advice. Um, but that is sort of, I think, the most prominent, most well-known way that it delivers uh, legal advice. But it also can deliver informal opinions and email or simple spoken opinions as well. And so we'll discuss this afternoon the authority of each kind of advice uh, rendered by the office. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to my colleague Liz, who's going to kick off our conversation about why we are increasingly concerned about the influence and power of the Office of Legal Counsel. That's right. Um, on our on my uh, outline for this conversation, I have this subject, uh, this this section titled "Why It's Bad," which may not be entirely fair, but uh, but we'll just let you in kind of on the on the way we've been looking at this. Um, so the office itself isn't bad. Um, but the way it's been used and the way it's been treated by both the executive branch and the public and Congress, I think, is is having a bad effect on um, legal jurisprudence and also legislative uh, legislative work through Congress. Um, so, the, I think the overarching concern we have with this office is um, is one that's systemic to the office. It is because it's the in-house legal expert. Uh, for the executive branch, it has a natural bias towards uh, towards the executive branch and towards taking a legal interpretation in whatever issue that it's weighing in on. That um, that both is excessive, gives excessive deference to the executive branch, but also just takes a reading of the law that is most favorable to the president that is currently in the White House or the executive branch in general. Um, I think this is especially obvious when we when the Office of Legal Counsel weighs in on questions involving the relationship between Congress and the executive branch. Um, so I just wanted to get us started by talking through explaining a few of the opinions that they've issued um, that we take issue with, uh, especially as an organization that focuses so much of our time on Congress's oversight authorities and making sure that Congress knows what those authorities are and the extent of, of your powers as congressional staffers. So in 2004, the Office of Legal Counsel issued an analysis, and you will be—you will notice that I'm being very careful to not use the word opinion. And as Sarah mentioned earlier, we will come back to that. So there was a 2004 analysis that they issued uh, that said that the executive that executive branch officials have the authority to prohibit officers or employees of, of executive branch departments from providing information to Congress. Uh, we would argue they don't have that authority. Um, in 2004, they also issued. Sorry, in 2000. 2014, they issued an analysis that U.S. attorneys have um, have prosecutorial discretion when they're considering whether to carry out citations for contempt of Congress that have been referred to them by by Congress. Um, that that analysis expanded on an uh, on a analysis that they issued in 1984 um, that was centered more around contempt citations that are based on executive privilege, although even there I would say giving the executive branch the authority to decide when to uh, when to execute Congress's um, contempt authorities is improper. Um, and then fast forward to 20, 2018, 
there was an analysis issued by the office that that states that and it's that's still on the books and all of these are still on the books um, that states that individual members of Congress uh, including ranking mem ranking members uh, do not have the authority to conduct oversight in absence of a specific delegation by the full chamber a committee or a subcommittee um, what we saw there was kind of was the executive branch pushing back on the um, on the authority of any minority member from conducting oversight, and uh, you know that's just uh, in our opinion uh, not how uh, not how congressional oversight is supposed to work, uh, and certainly wasn't what the founders intended when they were setting Congress up as a co-equal branch. And something to add to that, if if you look at um, sort of the the evolution of these different analyses or opinions issued by OLC that they are increasingly reliant on prior <laughs> opinions of OLC. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and, and that has, of course, created some problems for the Department of Justice and positions that it's taken before some of the federal courts, if and when these sorts of questions that are addressed by the opinions actually end up in a court, which mm -hmm. is not that frequent. Um, but the circular reasoning that is um, apparent in some of these decision makings is also Quite concerning and problematic. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just run you through a few, uh, three more um, analyses that uh, analyses that the office put out in just in this year. Um, one saying that uh, any assistant or senior counselor to the president is absolutely immune from compelled congressional testimony. Uh, one saying that Congress must have a legitimate legislative purpose uh, to be able to compel the production of confidential information to uh, the House Ways and Means Committee. That's the one, that's the opinion relating to um, the president's tax returns and whether or not uh, the Treasury Department has to turn those over, um, like the law says that they do. Uh, and then the last uh, is that congressional subpoenas that that, uh, that would require an agent, agency employees to appear without agency counsel are legally invalid and are not subject to civil or criminal enforcement. So um, that's just a read through of some of the opinion of some of the significant opinions from our perspective that uh, that come out of the Office of Legal Counsel that would limit Congress's oversight authorities uh, in a way that um, that we don't think is is great um, and one certainly that that you guys should feel empowered to challenge. Right. Um, another area that we're very concerned about with um, OLC opinion making is sort of its outsized influence on the, uh, the public's understanding and the media's understanding of what the law is. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the best examples of this is the very old OLC opinion at this point from the 1970s uh, that uh, states that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Um, that is, if you were to watch the, uh, you know, any Sunday news show, you would think that that was the gospel, that that was mm -hmm. a decision that had been issued by the United States Supreme Court. Um, and so that is, you know, and, and another piece of this that's concerning is that the veneer of legitimacy that comes from the Office of Legal Counsel in condoning actions of the executive branch is what continues to give it this sort of um, overwhelming, I think, influence, uh, not just in what the executive branch does, but in the way that the public perceives what the law is. Um, and a, another thing that I would like us to talk a little bit about is the somewhat constrained, or excuse me, the strained legal analysis that ends up coming from the office in light of its 
sort of deference to executive power or it's frankly it's biased towards the towards executive power um, and you only need to look at a, a series of, of opinions that have been issued by the office to sort of see that this strained analysis has resulted in the courts the Congress and even OLC itself reversing its position um, for example its opinion that federal courts could not hear appeals from prisoners Guantanamo that they were barred from from habeas was later rejected by a 2008 decision of the Supreme Court in Bimini. Um, its opinion allowing government agencies to ignore requests for information from individuals of Congress was later disavowed um, by the Trump administration at, at the urging of Senator Grassley. Although um, I would point out that the opinion is still out there and is still controlling right. yeah, on the executive happened. branch. So they may have denounced it, but they have not rescinded it. Right, <laughs> right. Um, similar, similar issue with the torture memos. Mm -hmm. um, its opinion supporting warrantless mass surveillance, um, absent any judicial review, was actually later refuted by a subsequent OLC uh, decision within the same administration. Um, and you know, and, and then I would say, of course, that the the torture memos are probably the most notorious uh, example of the very strained legal analysis. Uh, dating back to 2002 and 2005, you know, that I think many of us would agree is, is now representative of one of the most shameful passages in modern American history. Um, so, I, I just, Liz, oh, excuse me, Danielle, <laughs> my boss, Danielle. Here. I, I just wanted to jump in with one of the, the uh, implications of this is not just sort of because we happen to be government nerds and, and care about sort of the, <laughs> the separation of powers, but uh, there was a 1970s opinion uh, during the time of Nelson Rockefeller becoming the vice president where they were, uh, they issued an opinion that essentially said that the Ethics and Government Act could not, would be unconstitutional for it to apply to the president or vice president. And that then was codified by Congress because they just believed that opinion to be um, the, you know, the fact, mm -hmm. uh, even though there was never actually a serious evaluation of whether that was true. And since then, former uh, CRS analysts um, have looked at that opinion and thought it was actually, you know, really mistaken. So the implications where Congress actually then codified an opinion that may have been completely unfounded is part of why we think mm -hmm. this is so important for Congress to be rethinking rather than just assuming that what OLC says is actually good law or good interpretation of law. Yeah, and I think one of the problems there is that um, Congress and the press and the public, as, as Sarah said earlier, is that um, they consistently treat OLC opinions or analyses analyses as if they were a judicial opinion. Um, that's, I just want to point out, because of separation of powers, that's wholly inconsistent with how the Constitution um, is set up and uh, given the office's position in the executive branch. Um, but it's also really significant for, for a whole host of other reasons. Um, the, the first of which being that courts rarely have the opportunity to directly examine OLC opinions. Um, we at POGO don't have standing to sue on OLC opinions when we don't believe that they're correct. Um, I would say the class of individuals organizations that have standing to sue on any given OLC opinion um, is is incredibly small um, 
So to, if, if we could leave you with just one thing, and I'm skipping ahead here a little bit, is to not take OLC analysis pieces as if they are the final word. Um, to look at them skeptically and, um, and, and push back uh, when OLC tells you uh, that legislation your boss wants to work on is unconstitutional. Because at that point, um, they, you know, that's, that is an opinion, it is not the opinion, uh, and it's important to look at them skeptically. Right, and representations that are made by the Department of Justice to Congress as it weighs in on um, possible legislation is, you know, it comes from the Office of Legislative Affairs, but ultimately OLC is heavily engaged in any position that DOJ is taking mm -hmm. about um, prospective legislation. Mm -hmm. um, so we got, we got a few questions um, submitted, uh, one of which was, uh, to what extent do OLC opinions apply to inter interactions with independent agencies, such as the SEC, Federal Reserve, et cetera? Um, that's a, that was a great question because we actually missed earlier in our overview when talking about kind of the, um, the authority that OLC uh, opinions, I say that reluctantly, um, have in the executive branch and they're largely considered binding, but, uh, but, that, but it is an interesting question when we're talking about independent agencies because they hold a, a special place in the executive branch. Um, OLC actually, when an independent agency asks OLC to weigh in on an issue, they make, they, OLC makes the uh, representatives of the uh, independent agency sign, uh, sign something saying that they will be bound by the opinion that OLC puts forth. So, um, so they go an extra step to make sure that they, that they really are the controlling word inside the executive branch, which is a very important caveat. Um, there was a second question that came in about uh, the level of transparency of this OLC versus previous administration's OLC, um, OLCs. And, and it's an interesting question, but one that's almost impossible to answer because uh, it, while it does, while I will say the Trump administration has been, it appears to be pretty good uh, in terms of transparency and proactive transparency from the Office of Legal Counsel, it's really hard to know what we don't know. And so all we see are the opinions that they published um, published because they you know because they decided to uh, there's no mechanism to force OLC despite the fact that their opinions are treated as binding um, legal uh, legal analysis by the executive branch there's no mechanism to force them to publish those uh, those public publicly right. and, and maybe you know I harbor a little skepticism about the degree of transparency right now given the um, you know, volume of executive orders that have been issued by the president and that the Office of Legal Counsel is engaged um, in, in the preparation of and, and the vetting of those executive orders, um, the, the release of OLC opinions is not, you know, doesn't remotely match the, the volume mm -hmm. of executive orders that have been issued. For example, um, if you take a recent search of what's available on DOJ's website, you know, there's nothing related to the, to the Declaration of emergency, mm -hmm. there's nothing travel ban, I mean, some of the major issues that have come up over the last three years. Yeah, and then just one more point on, on transparency. Um, 
like I said earlier, that it, that it appears this administration is doing a pretty good job. I will highlight one kind of uh, extreme example that we experienced in our attempts to use the Freedom of Information Act to wrestle some more information out of the Office of Legal Counsel. We submitted a request at the beginning of 20, about halfway through 2017, uh, for any legal opinions that they had issued and uh, just titles of those opinions, so not even the text of them. And what we got back was a list of seven where six were fully redacted. Uh, we then appealed that decision and almost immediately OLC and DOJ sent us a list of seven with only one redacted. And the topics were so innocuous that it was kind of absurd to us um, that, that they even attempted to hide them in the beginning. And um, luckily we didn't have to go to court on that one because I will now talk about the perils of, of litigation to kind of get these opinions out of, um, out into the public. But, uh, but, if, but we, I, if I could give some um, texture to that, Liz's example, one of the ones that they had redacted was plans for celebration of the centennial of JFK's birthday. Right, certainly not something that deserves <laughs> excess secrecy or, uh, yeah, so that was, I think it's just such an absurd example yeah. that I love to carry around to uh, two sheets, uh, those two FOIA requests to point out to people when uh, when I hear back, like, can't you just use a FOIA request? <laughs> you can, but, uh, but you oh, will get mixed results. Yeah. Um, and then, just, I, mm -hmm. I'd like to add one thing so that, you know, we're not, Sort of harping on the current administration, um, you know, this is this is a problem, mm -hmm. you know, that transcends partisan politics. Frankly, you know, no matter who is occupying the White House, I mean, people have been, uh, you know, Pogo and the Constitution Project included, uh, desiring to get information about the uh, OLC opinion that, as far as we can discern, um, condones targeted killing and drone mm -hmm. strikes. Um, and that continues to be uh, one that has not seen the light of day. Mm -hmm. And that's, of, you know, so this is not something that, you know, that, that we are just looking at the last three years. Mm -hmm. And then just one more point on litigation under FOIA and we'll move on. Um, this is the one area where you will see DOJ uh, admit that its opinions are just a, a legal analysis. They say they are just legal advice that nobody in the executive branch is required to follow. Uh, the reason why they say that in court under FOIA litigation is because if that is true, then they are less, they, then there's a, um, there isn't a requirement for them to publish them proactively. If they instead went to court and went and, and put forth the line that they use everywhere else, including on their website, that they, you know, are the, are the controlling office of legal opinion in the executive branch, then uh, then they would be required under the Freedom of Information Act as written to public proactively publish that those opinions because um, because secret law has no place in our society. <laughs> right, um, and then you know perhaps the last point that relates to the uh, the degree of authority that that we should be giving um, OLC opinion making. Uh, you know, we, we certainly encourage all of you to look at court decisions that have addressed OLC opinions, particularly when they're cited as some sort of legal authority for mm -hmm. a premise that the administration, any administration, is uh, setting forth before the courts. Um, I think the most recent and perhaps comprehensive takedown of OLC authority was by um, Judge Marrero in the Southern District of New York just last month relating to the tax returns case and, and I think 
Vance v. Trump or Trump v. Vance. Um, and, you know, Judge Marrero spent about 10 pages discussing the, the problems with relying on, on OLC authority as the, the justification for, you know, what we would think to be a pretty extreme position that, that the president is completely immune from criminal process. Mm -hmm. um, I also found that very, what I think to be a pretty interesting example um, from a 2008 federal criminal case involving alleged torture um, by the accused and, and that defendant's lawyers were actually having actually sought to have the torture memos admitted as part of the jury instructions ostensibly to limit or to circumscribe the jury's understanding of what the definition of torture was right because that would help their client um, and the federal judge re uh, rejected the terms laid out in the memo saying I will not give an instruction that relies upon that memorandum as its authority which I think is a, is a really good jumping off point because I think what we would consider successful, a successful use of your time here would be if you walk away with that same skepticism towards uh, opinions issued by the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, so in the short term, what can you do to kind of correct the imbalance between Congress and the executive branch as perpetuated by OLC is, um, is to remember that you're under no obligation to, uh, to agree with or follow OLC opinions opinions um, when they object to legislation that your boss wants to uh, introduce or pass, um, or when it, when it comes to the Office of Legal Counsel interpreting what your authority as a congressional office is. Um, I would say uh, one good thing to, to do is to seek out additional sources of legal analysis. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's not outside of the uh, realm of um, realm of reasonableness to suggest that a legal opinion written by a legal intern in your office should have the same weight as one issued by the Office of Legal Counsel when it comes to what you guys d decide to do as congressional staffers. Because frankly, they're just both two sides of a legal argument that really we need the courts to decide um, if we want to be sure that that you're that you're acting on what is the law. That's right. Um, you know, we also are exploring uh, different options for substantive legislation mm -hmm. that the Congress might wish to consider uh, to address overreach by the Office of Legal Counsel. Mm -hmm. um, I'll let Liz talk a little bit about transparency. That's something that's presently yeah. uh, under consideration. Mm -hmm. But then there's a few other things that we're kicking around here and that we certainly would love to be in touch with your offices about as, as we get a little more solid in what we're mm -hmm. thinking of. Proposing. Yeah, so to the transparency point, as we were saying earlier, um, we it's really hard to know what we don't know. And so OLC transparency is really the first step in being able to address the systemic issues uh, emanating from this office. And there is a bill right now in the House uh, titled the OLC Sunlight Act. It was recently introduced by Representatives Cartwright, Lofgren, and Quigley um, with a whole host of other co-sponsors. So if your boss is a co-sponsor on that, thank them for me, um, which would require OLC to provide Congress and the public with full legal opinions as they issue them, um, of course, with, uh, with um, redactions for classified information or uh, personal information, like when we're talking about like a, a, a single person's appointment or, or personal, um, personally identifiable information. And um, I'll close by uh, ticking off two other things that we've been thinking about a little more seriously as well. Um, and one is the need for binding standards of professional conduct for OLC attorneys mm -hmm. that could be enforced by the Office of Professional Responsibility. 
Um, and another is to uh, find a mechanism to get OLC to engage in its own independent fact-finding rather than accepting representations from the various agencies or even from the White House itself. This was a particularly pernicious problem um, when it came to OLC's condoning of torture because the CIA made a number of misrepresentations that were pretty material to the outcome of a legal analysis um, before OLC issued its multiple memoranda, you know, basically condoning, uh, condoning torture. Um, it also relates to the increasing frequency of executive orders, right, mm -hmm. where the office is needing to, um, you know, there's, there's a culture in the office, I think, that sort of accepts that a president is acting in good faith and setting out what the facts are, underpinning a particular executive order proposal. And so what is the office to do um, when it cannot necessarily trust the facts as presented to it? So, so independent fact-finding becomes very important in that context as well. Um, as we wrap up, and thank you both Sarah and Liz, um, I just wanted to note that we're, we find ourselves in this situation in part because the many decades long experience at CRS at the American Law Division, who were often the resources for your predecessors, uh, both Lou Fisher and Mort Rosenberg, who would often be asked by congressional offices to evaluate OLC opinions uh, with a with an appropriate bias towards congressional <laughs> powers, uh, both retired a while ago. So uh, the uh, CRS lost that capacity, but they are both fellows with the Project on Government Oversight. And so you can always reach out to them through us, and they're very happy to continue to advise and, and give guidance if you have specific legal questions that you want to uh, take advantage of their great wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So thank you all so much. Please, uh, we'll probably do these on occasion. Uh, let us know if you found this helpful. Um, and if you have specific questions, please also follow up with us on those as well. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. everyone.